Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. Okay, Ben, so today's podcast episode is Why People Quit and How to Keep Them. That's right, Chris. And today we're going to talk about a lot of stuff. We're going to talk about the aspects of turnover and retention. We're going to talk about what the research says about all this. We're also going to talk about retention management, how you can keep good people in your organization, and some evidence-based guidelines for that. We're going to talk about something called the unfolding model of turnover to help everyone understand kind of actually what happens psychologically for folks as they're making the decision to leave an organization. And related to that, we'll talk about the idea of organizational commitment and some withdrawal factors, some different things that can happen that you can potentially notice as a leader uh, in your folks that may give you an indication that they are starting to withdraw from the organization in some way. Right. I just want to kind of start off with this, you know, and preparing for this episode was kind of an emotional gauntlet for me. Um, I came out of grad school when the economy was falling apart, right? Um, during the Great Recession or whatever they, whatever name they put on it <laughs> nowadays. And um, I just remember seeing so many of my peers and classmates and then also being in the National Guard, so many of my soldiers struggling um, with employment. Right. And I know, I know that the episode is why people quit and how to keep them. But this touches on so many items from the idea of what if you can't quit, but you really want to, Mm -hmm. you know, what if you've got an elder care situation and you're stuck in a place that only has, you know, maybe it's a small town that has one or two employers and the company doesn't even care to retain you because you know, they have a long line of people that they can pick up. Mm-hmm. I think this stuff really, so I had a lot of feelings around this, like, what, so why do people quit, you know, and we're going to go through all of this different stuff, but it, this really speaks to the core of our manifesto, which if any of our listeners haven't read our manifesto, I recommend you go to uh, www.indigotogether.com and, and get the link for the manifesto and read it. But this really is a values, values-driven proposition for organization. Right. Um, are, are people just chattel that you move around like subhuman individuals? Is your organization just saying, well, what's the minimum I got to do to keep people because really I'm focused on my massive bonus or yacht and the Caymans? Right. Um yeah. I mean, I think this is all very, very important. And it comes back to the whole idea that we've talked about before, and it's, you know, in the manifesto and, and so forth, about the idea that, you know, the world itself is better when people flourish at work. Uh, you know, work is such an important and big piece of our lives, at least in civilized society today, that if that experience is subpar or horrible for folks, then that really affects them personally. And if you want to change the world, 
this is me maybe getting a little cliched and so forth, but I think it's really true. If you want to change the world, you do that by changing your organizations. You know, you can start by, you know, changing your family. You can do it by uh, having good uh, values and so forth. Uh, But taking that into the workplace and the way in which you treat people really matters. And if organizations would take a hard look at this, I think that they would find that oftentimes they they can fall into that trap of just seeing their employees as numbers on a spreadsheet, as people that, you know, things that have to get managed just like any other kind of commodity that they may come across. Uh, yeah. And, you know, the best organizations, I, I think, don't do that and do have a more uh, human approach towards managing, towards leading. And when they do that, they tend to uh, flourish as an organization, right? So this isn't just about, you know, making the, the, the person flourish, although that's awesome, right? They go hand in hand. Um, and so I, I completely agree that this topic of turnover and retention is very personal to so many of us, uh, you know, and most of us have gone through experiences where we've either quit a job, wanted to quit a job, maybe couldn't quit because we had various reasons why, you know, we had to stay there. Uh, So I completely agree with you. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because these attitudes and and this is where I think, yes, there are some organizations that do this well. But the reason Mm -hmm. we're addressing this now here earlier in this podcast, um, our podcast history, is that so many organizations do this garbage, right? It's just garbage. All right. And so, and it's funny because it's like a petulant child. There's a business cycle. So when, when the business cycle is bad, everybody's like, well, ha ha, we now have slave labor. Right. And you can see that in the metrics about efficiency and, and employee output, you know, they were getting more done with (laughs) less. And I mean, some of that's the competitive landscape and globalization, but not all of it, because I've sat in those senior meetings with HR professionals describing just the most unethical, soul-sucking HR strategy that you'd ever see. But then on the flip side of that, when the economy's good, like it is now in a lot of places, um, they, oh, we, we can't find and retain good talent. And, and the thing is, is a lot of people aren't mm-hmm. stupid. They're wise to this act. They know that these organizations don't give a rip about them as individuals. So, oh, the economy's good. I'm just going to bilk this company for everything they're worth and bid up my salary, you know, or, you know, maybe I'll be more mobile. You know, they'll, there'll be generational critiques about people won't stay in jobs or roles. Mm-hmm. But uh, from a capitalist perspective, isn't that just the labor market? being efficient. Right. And, but we're humans, right? We aren't, you know, when I look at two uh, consulting engagements, one pays like a thousand dollars more a day or whatever than another one. Am I really looking at that item? No, there's this holistic items as individuals. Um, when we go to buy a house for our children, um, to live in or a a condo or whatever, it's not just about, you know, price per se. It's Mm -hmm. about watching your kids open presents on Christmas morning. Yeah. 
right? And yeah. so I just want to highlight the human factors here and that we're really making a plea and a call to organizations to behave ethically. Now, right. you do have constraints in the business world, but these are people. You are people. We can do better, and we want to help provide a way um, through this episode why people quit and how to keep them on ethical and evidence-based ways in which to conduct yourselves in regards to uh, employee turnover and retention. Great, great. So I think that kind of takes us into our first part of this this episode, which is about turnover and retention and trying to look at what the research actually says about turnover and retention. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of myths out there. And there's a, a great article from uh, a couple years ago, but it's still very, very relevant, by David Allen, Philip Bryant, and James Vardaman uh, in Academy of Management Perspectives. And we'll put a link up to that in the show notes. But it's, it's basically reviewing and uh, putting together all the research on some of these myths about turnover uh, and how organizations can use evidence-based strategies to retain their talent. Uh, and, you know, when I talk about evidence-based strategies, what we're talking about there is uh, our strategies that are based upon social science research on these types of topics. Uh, you know, there are decades of research, um, lots of data on uh, organizations and on people's behavior in them and using that as a way to better strategize how you're going to uh, come up with ways to retain people and how to deal with things like turnover. Right. And, and there's a gap here um, that mm -hmm. we see. Um, a lot of the HR strategy and um, things that organizations do in this space is based on anecdotal evidence or some kind of program that was left over from the person you inherited the job from, mm -hmm. right? So CEOs are like, uh, listen, you're HR, you, you do the people strategy part. So one, CEOs don't really have a lot of CEOs. The best ones do, but a lot of CEOs don't have the people strategy part nailed down. Like right. they don't really understand how to use HR as a strategic uh, advantage or how to empower HR to fill in their numbskull gaps in knowledge, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so you have that piece. And then, and then on the HR side, you'll have people that, oh, may, they just need a program that can brief the C-suite. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so we got our PowerPoint, we got our like data dashboard, and this will pass the baloney test, the sniff test, so to speak. And I can keep my job and going because I'm not empowered, right? Mm -hmm. And then I guess the third part of that is, you know, there are, and it's just, you know, HR starting to bring data in-house. Um, and so they may have somebody that can go technically crunch the data, but often the times the person that's doing the data crunching or, or pulling um, data out of the systems is an analyst. They mm -hmm. don't understand that HR piece. And so it's just like a prime recipe for missing it in this area. Exactly, exactly. And, I, and one of my fears as we start to use more data for managing people in organizations is that we do that absent what we know about human behavior, right? So if I just have a spreadsheet full of numbers, I can find all kinds of correlations between things and associations between different numbers. However, 
that that might just be something that's due to chance. It might be a spurious correlation, right? It's not something that's guided by what we think is reasonable, what types of theories we have and, and evidence-based strategies we have about human behavior and organizations. And so if we only have folks who kind of have a, a purely quantitative approach towards um, towards data, maybe, you know, from uh, computer science or, sta- you know, statistics backgrounds, which those people are great, and we really need to incorporate them in our management strategies and practices, um, but they don't necessarily have a knowledge of, of psychology or organizational science. And I think that is a, a piece that really needs to be part of, of using data wisely. And then once you come up with, you know, you say, well, the data are saying X, Y, or Z, there needs to be some smart interpretation about what to do with those findings. And that's where having, uh, you know, a smart approach towards what, um, how humans behave in organizations really matters. So, right. right. And it's, it's, it's a piece of that, who you are as an organization. If people get reduced to spreadsheets, I mean, it's, that kind of value is going to get communicated to people, and it definitely doesn't advocate or make a place that's conducive towards human flourishing. Indeed, indeed. So this uh, article by David Allen and his co-authors, we're going to kind of go through some of these different aspects that they raise in terms of five common myths or misconceptions about turnover and some other strategies that one can take uh, with regard to those myths. What do you say? Yeah, definitely. Lots and lots of myths, like we were talking about. It's anecdotal people's knowledge about this. So let's talk about some of the main myths, and then let's get that evidence-based approach to, you know, what's the truth? Right, right. So first of all, I want to make a a special note here that what we're talking about here with regard to turnover is voluntary turnover. This is people of their own volition quitting, not them being fired, right? Yeah, so, you stole like a thousand pens out of the <laughs> yeah, out, out of the resource drawer and sold them on eBay. Okay, well, those people, they should turn over, right? Right, right, um, right. Right, exactly. So we're talking right. about, you know, when, especially when you're losing, uh, you know, good people who go work elsewhere, right? That's what we want to prevent in organizations. So the, the five myths, I'll list the five myths, and then we'll start to dig into each one a little bit more in turn. So the uh, myth number one is that all turnover is the same and it is all bad. Myth number two, people quit because of pay. Myth number three, people quit because they are dissatisfied with their jobs. Myth number four, there is little managers can do directly to influence turnover decisions. And myth number five, a simple one-size-fits-all retention strategy is most effective. So, <laughs> yeah. So let, nice. those, th- no, those are all myths, right? I don't want anybody right. to... I, very like, hey, wait, there. wait a minute. That's what we do at our organization. <laughs> Very Sorry, likely. buddy. Yeah, yeah. Those <laughs> are all myths. So let's uh, let's briefly discuss each one of these, um, starting with number one, which is this idea that all turnover is the same and it is all bad. That is a myth. Right. Uh, and Ben, there's, there's different types of turnover, right? Like mm-hmm. the pen thief turnover, you know, <laughs> you know, okay, that's somebody. Um, I know a lot of smaller mid-sized organizations, they'll generally have a kind of, I call them a niche role. 
So if you're a mid-sized organization and you need some data analytics, maybe you have an analyst that's just in that role. But after they've been in that role for a year or two, they've probably mastered the aspects of that job. And, and they want to go to a bigger uh, organization where they can stretch their quantitative muscles, so to speak. Right. Um, you can expect turnover in that role, you know, that we've got a good job description, everything's happy, the person comes in and they say, oh, well, it's time for my growth to occur. Right. So, so I, I'm going to leave for a better opportunity. That's that's a type of turnover, right? Sure, sure, absolutely. And, you know, some turnover is uh, you could consider to be good or at least functional, right? Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, if you have zero turnover, meaning you anyone who's hired just stays there for life, or you have something kind of close to that, uh, you know, that a lot of people say, oh, wow, that's amazing. People just stay forever. Well, first of all, there can be lots of reasons why they're staying there. Maybe they don't have alternatives. Uh, but uh, also, you know, you are limiting the influx of new ideas into your organization. Uh, right. it, you know, you can kind of com- become stagnant if you have very, very, very low turnover. So, you know, there are some benefits to having new folks come into your organization um, and bringing that, those fresh ideas and so forth. So some turnover is actually good. Right. And then, you know, there's different costs, you know, involved with this turnover, right? right. Um, I know I worked at a Dell call center for a while early, 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 <laughs> many moons ago. <laughs> God um, bless you. <laughs> and... No, it was a, it was a good job and really yeah. really good people. I definitely my first introduction to large enterprise organizations and kind of mm-hmm. how they operate and so but you know a lot of people may get involved in that and, and it was in sales is is where I was at and um it yeah I can still remember the um script. Yeah, thank you for calling Dell uh sales and something what computer can I build for you today? Over and over <laughs> and over. But, but then, you know, a lot of people moved on to professional sales roles. And Dell had so professionalized that they made it very easy to onboard a cohort of huh. phone service staff and then very easy for them to offboard, actually. Right, right. Well, that's good. That's good. But versus, so we're talking about cost versus bringing on a COO and your company's toxic or something, and they leave within six months after you paid the bajillions of dollars to an executive search committee and all that kind of thing. Right, you're right. So, you know, the, the, the cost definitely can vary um, across these different types of turnover. Some people are much more or less expensive to lose or replace. Uh, you know, those more senior roles um, definitely can be very, very expensive, um, you know, some and like you you already mentioned many roles you can actually expect a decent amount of turnover. Uh, now, would it be good to you know try to find ways to keep people in those jobs? Perhaps, right? Um, you don't want to just say, "Well, we have high turnover in this uh, area, and that's just always going to be that way." Um, yeah, no know, scrutiny you, here. Yeah, yeah, don't need yeah. to look any further. Uh, I, I would say that's probably wrong. You should look at that. Um, and, you know, and maybe after investigation, if you're realizing that, hey, this is one of those roles where people come in and they do some sort of um, job and they, they learn s- some different skills and then they move on. Well, maybe that is, 
you know something that's that's just going to be the way it is. However, they they should be scrutinized and uh, and looked at a little bit more closely. And it needs to be ethical all the way because it, it's mm-hmm. again that's where that risk here is. Like some people are more or less expensive to lose, and we tend to attach value to that as right. a society or just as we think. But but you know yes, that's a balance sheet look, but if you want to be viewed as an ethical company and your uh, reputation in the marketplace to be good, you need to make sure that those onboarding and offboarding of, say, a call center employee or something are ethical and value the individual. Right, right. And so it's also important to you know keep in mind, you mentioned reputation in the community. Uh, you know, that, that information about what it's like to work in a company is becoming more and more transparent. You know, this is yeah. what glassdoor.com. It, it's I mean, the gla- that's yeah. our whole business model, right? Exactly. You know, people call this the glass door effect where, mm-hmm. you know, people will, and, and, you know, it's hard to know how reflective it is of reality because, you know, you probably get the people who are either super excited about a company or super annoyed with the company who um, may be the people who are responding and writing a review of an organization. But there are, there are, you know, people do go on there and they write things about what it's like to work in an organization and that becomes public. And people who are searching for jobs oftentimes will go and, and look at that and say, well, you know, is this a place where I really would want to try to make a career or even take a job for a while? Yeah, and, and we're smart enough about reviews now. We've Amazon, Rotten Tomatoes, that we can kind of tell when somebody's just being being a jerk or, you know, may have had a been a one-off bad experience versus, you know, we can aggregate that data and do a decent job at least of guessing ourselves what it's like to work work at that place. Right. So to recap, myth number one, all turnover is the same and it is all bad. That is a myth because there are different types of turnover. Some is actually good or at least functional, and the costs do vary from different types of turnover. That's right. So that's, that's a myth. <laughs> Don't believe it. Um, so let's go to the next one, Ben. Uh, people quit because of pay. That is a myth. Uh, and this is probably the one that I... Um, come across most frequently with, uh, well, one of the ones that is most frequent with managers that I, with whom I, I have conversations. Uh, we oftentimes think people are just annoyed with not getting paid enough, so they leave. And actually, you know, people's pay level or their satisfaction with their pay is a relatively weak indicator of whether or not someone is going to quit. Um, in fact, the, interestingly, the, you know, the, the most um, powerful predictor of whether or not someone is going to quit is whether or not they're thinking about it, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's what, and, 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 and actually <laughs> looking for a job, right? If, if you have somebody who's uh, spending a bunch of time on uh, indeed.com or, you know, brushing up their LinkedIn right. profile or whatever, and, uh, you know, they, they oftentimes are thinking about quitting, well, that's probably a pretty big indicator they're going to quit. Um, you know, but also kind of going behind that, and we'll talk about this a little bit more when we talk about the unfolding model of turnover, uh, are some attitudes. You know, things like um, job satisfaction and, and particularly organizational commitment, you know, someone's feelings of loyalty towards the organization, those are strong predictor- predictors of whether or not someone's going to quit um, above and beyond things like pay. Right. You know, and this isn't exactly this isn't maybe the best example, but, you know, imagine just going, you know, you're in a marriage relationship or long-term partnership and, and satisfaction is declining. And, you know, all of these kinds of things, maybe somebody's, you know, they're married, but they're on OK Cupid or something like that. 
<laughs> you know, it's, you know, instead of indeed. Right. And you're like, yeah. I I'm leaving. What, what if I gave you a Ferrari? <laughs> I mean, it's just so obtuse, but, but that's kind of the mentality that we're talking about here. Yeah. You People know quit is. because of pay, like, Oh, you're going to quit. I'll give you 50 more grand. Right. Uh, yeah. And you know, the retention data, if somebody, Oh, I got a bigger offer. Oh, well, we're going to come up with a counter offer. You know, the, the reason why those things derail around price is there's generally something under the hood on the psychosocial level that's driving that t- terminate that uh, employment relationship type behaviors. Right. right. I, you know, I think back to when, you know, when I was on active duty in the Navy. So I was a surface warfare officer. So I drove ships around the world and, and all that kind of stuff. It was a lot of cool parts of that, you know, worked with some amazing people and, you know, when I was making the decision whether or not to leave active duty, and, you know, I've, as you know, I've stayed in the reserves ever since, so I'm still, still around the military a lot, but um, when I was making that decision to leave active duty and go reserve, I, um, you know, one thing I came across is, well, you know, you stick around and do this um, active duty surface warfare thing, you could get uh, a retention bonus. And the retention bonus, I think at that time, was something like, I don't know, 75 grand or something. I mean, it was, it was fairly substantial. Um, and, you know... I, I didn't even think twice about it. I was like, that that doesn't do anything for me. The golden um, handcuffs. Right. You know, what, what <laughs> if did you it go for, that way, it's right. the golden handcuffs. <laughs> it is, you know, and what, what did it for me was thinking more along the lines of, you know, where I wanted my career to go, some other options that I had, as well as, you know, some aspects of, um, you know, organizational culture that I, you know, I wanted to be part of some other types of things and, and so forth. So, um, you know, another important part of this puzzle of you know why people quit uh in addition you know aside from the pay thing um is the importance of managers and supervisors how the work and the jobs themselves are designed relationships in the organization those things are really really important oh yeah the, you know, um I, <laughs> the, you know the quote and it, it's kind of trite but there, there's you know, some stuff behind it, which is people don't leave companies, they leave managers, mm-hmm. you know, right. but they leave companies too. So that's not completely true. Yeah. But, but for most people, they're the manager, the supervisor, uh, is uh, the window through which they experience the organization. You know, when right. your manager, when your supervisor is a jerk to you, you oftentimes attribute that psychologically to the organization. You know, right? Um, or if they're great to you, uh, <laughs> vice versa. So you, we, I don't think we should ever discount the the tremendous amount that it, it matters for you to have supportive, high quality managers and supervisors, as well as having great relationships. You know, on a, a parallel or a um, a uh, you know horizontal types of relationships, relationships with your peers. So you know, if you have a, a culture of incivility and bullying, you know, that's, that's going to make people want to quit very right. Right. And, and another piece I want to highlight here is like, we've all been in an organization where like this place stinks, Mm -hmm. but my manager is awesome. And I love the people I eat lunch with every day. Yeah. Well, you know, that's not so bad. Right. And then it's so funny, the cognitive processes that go here. Oh, well, they left because they weren't a fit or, you know, there's always some external reason it that tends to not always, but I see this a lot. It was that employee that wasn't a fit or their fault for leaving 
that kind of thing. It's, you know, it's not you, it's me is kind of really what's happening. You know, you never see organizations go like, what is it about our managers, our senior leaders that are making people go away? You know, there's not that introspection. And that just feeds in that myth that, oh, people quit because of pay or a lot of these other myths, honestly. Right, right. Uh, You know, so um, I think that kind of brings us to myth number three. So myth number two was people quit because of pay. Uh, Myth number three is that people quit because they are dissatisfied with their jobs. You know, it's like, I don't really, you know, don't really, this this job doesn't really blow my hair back, so I'm going to quit. That's not actually, uh, you know, a, a huge driver. Uh, it is a driver, but not a huge driver of why people quit. Yeah, I mean, some people do that, you know, and, and it could be a situation of life, too. You know, right. if you're 21, just out of college, and you hop into a place and it stinks, you're like, okay, and bounce, right? Mm-hmm. But when you got three kids and a sick grandma at home, yep, you know, conducting a job search is a pain. It sure is. (laughs) I mean, unless you're like a top-notch software developer, then the job search just kind of comes to your LinkedIn uh, mailbox every day, right? But, you know, it's not something that just people do. The dissatisfaction has to be pretty high for a whole cohort of people to say, I want to get out of here. Exactly, exactly. And it's important to, I think, think about this in terms of there are many different paths uh, towards someone's decision to leave an organization. And we'll talk about that more here in a, a little bit when we talk about the unfolding model of turnover. Uh, and I think it's it's even more important to consider, you know, why people stay in organizations versus, you know, just why they're quitting. Yeah, yeah. So so let's take a look at, you know, feeding into number four. There is little managers can do directly to influence turnover decisions. That is a myth. <laughs> Fake news. <laughs> and I know, it's like... <laughs> It said every crappy manager ever. Yeah. Uh, oh man, the these people. <laughs> they're just gonna. Yeah, we just have bad folks, and they're all they're all just gonna leave. You know, it doesn't okay. matter what I do. These are low level employees. Like, what a disgusting. You know, like, ah, uh, low just, level. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Like, you know, and I use that term sometimes because you know we tend to view things as a hierarchy, but we can't place that existential value. Or these people don't have college degrees. Or you know, these people can't read and write well. Well, you know, have you designed that job? Anyway, I'll get yeah. off that soapbox. I yeah, already no. did one this morning. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think I think your point there is that everyone should be treated with dignity and respect, right? Um, and, you know, so going to this this myth that, that there is little that managers can do to, to directly influence those uh, turnover decisions, HR practices really, really do matter. And it's not just what HR is doing, because, you know, HR is oftentimes, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of doing things behind the scenes and so forth and, you know, at various points as needed, getting directly involved. Um, but, you know, if, if uh, managers aren't doing the stuff, um, you know, you could have the best organization, you know, the best HR organization in the world, but if managers aren't actually doing the stuff that HR is suggesting and, you know, asking HR for advice on different things or, you know, taking them up on different training opportunities or that kind of stuff, you know, then they're not going to be the most effective manager. So those HR practices really matter how you uh, recruit, how you hire, how you onboard, how you um, train and develop, uh, how you review performance. All those things really matter uh, because they they really, you know, touch on 
everyone's you know individual experience of work. Right. And and lots of times I see HR people taking their ball and going home, right? <laughs> what so, do you mean by that? <laughs> well, it's like so this they're not empowered by the executives and yep. so they take their ball and go home. And so some of that is defensible, right? If you can't do anything, you can't do anything. But your job is more than just going to the SHRM website and downloading a bunch of their templates and having an employment lawyer and an appropriate amount of insurance for when your managers screw up, right? No. It's It's got to be holistic. You can't say, well, I put the policy out there. I, you have to have moments, and this is where like corporate education can be a part of the HR function or at least a strong partner, that not only do you create the platform policy processes and modalities for these um, managers to execute and implement and for individual employees to interact with, you ensure the training and coaching and adoption of those new behaviors that will support those things. Now, you mm-hmm. know, one of those things you say, how do you recruit, select, and socialize employees and, and onboarding? You know, one of the biggest drivers of people bouncing out of organization is garbage onboarding. Yeah. You know, yeah, you didn't even get to the place where your organization <laughs> could drive them away. Right. Right. You just you just hired them and you've already screwed it up. Right. I, I I came across an organization once where now granted they were going through a tremendous growth, but their onboarding plan was um, you know, we hire people to work on our on our factory floor and they need to read the placard above the workstation and just do what it says. Like that was the extent of their training. <laughs> oh and, and then, they, and then they realized, uh, our, our employees can't read. Right. Oh, I, I, it was, yeah. It was just, Oh my gosh. Right. And, um, so I, I, you know, I think that is one of those key management moments, one of those key HR moments, how you onboard, how you socialize people really, really does matter. Don't, don't, you know, waste all the effort you went through to recruit and select people, assuming you actually, you know, did your due diligence there. Uh, you know, do, you know, follow that up with ensuring that people understand how to be successful, what the resources are that are available to them. And this goes all the way from, you know, the entry-level employee all the way up to the top. Right. And, you know, and we talk about this throughout our podcast, Managers Matter. And yep. it's it's more than just having technical knowledge about the job. It's curating culture and a whole host of things. So let's, man, we could do yeah. five well, episodes and, and on think, that, you know. Sure could. And, you know, I think it's important to just recognize, you know, so the myth here is that there is little managers can do directly to influence turnover decisions. Well, managers can oftentimes directly influence the work environment, the training that they're advocating for to get for their folks, the rewards and recognition, how they're interacting with and supervising people, if they're nice to people, if they treat them with fairness and dignity and respect, all that really matters. Right. So the myth is there's little they can do. Uh, the fact is there's a lot they can do, right? Yes. So, let, so let's go to the, the next one or the last one. So number five, a simple one-size-fits-all retention strategy is most effective. Myth. Myth. False. That's right. That's right. And I can, you know, I can see how this is, it's hard in a, especially in a, a busy organization with, you know, you have limited bandwidth and so forth where it's like, well, how are we going to keep good people? You know, and, and I think it's very tempting to look for that silver bullet, to look for that one thing that's going to keep our people, you know, keep our good people in the organization. And the, the 
the tricky thing though is that just having a one size fits all strategy is not going to be as effective as something more uh, situated to what the organization's context is. Right. And the way we do things in organizations kind of lends it to this place. So, mm-hmm. you know, let's say you come in, you're the new head of HR at a, I don't know, 3000 person place. Right. Okay. And it, well, you look, you've inherited a bunch of systems. It'll take a whole bunch of time to change it. Maybe you don't have the project management and culture change management um, skill set to really drive that change. So maybe you start making a little bit of stuff, but then you're also bogged down. You're probably not staffed appropriately in your HR function. So, you know, just keeping the 1099 sent out and and making sure you chase and recalcitrant managers on their daggone quarterly or annually reviews. And, you, you know, you just get bogged down in that. So it's easy, sure. you know, if you do go through a bunch of stuff, you do kind of get the retention strategy kind of baked. And this is how it is. And then and you might worry about, well, will this be favoritism and all that stuff? And, and I'm here to tell you that you can. You can have a solid retention strategy that you don't have to reinvent every year, but you can have opportunities for it to be humanized and more effective than just something that's just that legalistic document and way you interact. Right, right. Now, and there are a couple of different things that you can do here as an organization. And one of them we kind of already touched on when we were talking about data. So depending on the size of your organization, you got to have you can't be a, an organization of 10 and really have, you know, meaningful <laughs> data analysis <laughs> on your turnover. But if you, you know, as you start to increase in size, and certainly once you approach, you know, being a mid, mid-size or larger size organization, you can absolutely use your data to try to understand what's going on. And so you, doing some systematic analysis to, to see, okay, well, what, what can we look at in terms of our turnover data and how, you know, we can un- uncover some clues and strategies around what's happening in the organization. Uh, you know, we can uh, look at look at the data and say, well, you know, is is are there some associations between different um, locations of the organization where people are p- perhaps having higher turnover, different levels of the organization where turnover is higher, different managers under which they work where turnover uh, rates are different. All those things can start to inform your approach towards your retention strategy. Right. Uh, so in addition, and I think, you know, in addition to looking at your own data, you can also look at some specific drivers that we know from the research on all of this, uh, that drive retention. We've already talked about one of them, but that, that is onboarding. You know, do you have an onboarding process that is truly socializing people, not only to what they need to do on a daily basis, but also to the culture of the organization, to the values and norms, to you know what success looks like around here, not only in terms of what you do on your job, but how you get things done. So looking at onboarding, absolutely critical. You can also look at what we call job characteristics. And uh, this has to do with the way in which work itself is designed for a job. Uh, and there are five specific aspects, five job characteristics generally that we talk about. Um, the first one is task variety. So, you know, when people have the ability to use different knowledge and skills throughout the course of their day or their week, that's that's generally more satisfying than just doing the same thing over and over and over again. Uh, so looking at that. The other thing, another part of another job characteristic is what we call uh, task identity. 
right? So this is being able to see the outcome of your work, being able to see the whole thing. And one thing I always think about here is, um, I don't know how familiar you are with, uh, with motorcycles, but uh, no, no, a... <laughs> no clue. They, they look scary. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I had a motorcycle for a few years when I was younger and, and childless. Um, and I used to ride with my brother all over San Diego County. It was awesome. Uh, but there, there's a motorcycle company um, called Titan Motorcycles. And they make these, uh, I, I'm, I'm not up on what they're doing right now, but I, at least at the time, they, were, they make these very expensive motorcycles. But here's the thing, like one person at their factory a motorcycle expert builds one motorcycle from start to finish. And that is, I think, a really good example of task identity because that person is, I mean, there's a lot of satisfaction that comes from that. So like, I started with all the parts and I put this thing together and I made this awesome, beautiful piece of art that also, you know, goes pretty fast on the road and is awesome. So, you know, the, uh, I think that's an example, but there are also, you know, you don't have to be super inefficient and, you know, have that kind of approach towards your work to make task identity a thing. You can, as a manager, you know, talk about and show people the results of their work, um, help connect them with, uh, you know, the, the bigger impact. So they don't feel like just a cog in the wheel. Um, so that, that's another aspect, variety, identity, um, also task significance. We like to feel like our work matters, like we are doing something that, you know, is, is making the world a little bit better or at least, you know, making the, the life of somebody else in the organization a little bit better um, and is having that impact. So that's task significance. Uh, another piece of this is what we call autonomy. And so autonomy is about, you know, do you give people, you know, direction in terms of what needs to get done, but then let them figure out to some degree how they go about it, you know, make, putting, giving them a little bit of decision-making authority, you know, and this can vary depending on the person and the job, but people like to use their brains. We don't necessarily like to be treated like semi-programmable robots. Um, we like to be able to make some decisions there. And then the last piece is feedback. And so this is about, you know, how do you know whether or not you're, you did a good job? Now, some jobs have this as kind of part of the actual job. And what I mean by that is, you know, you think of like, you know, if you're, if you're a programmer, um, you're writing some computer program and you hit run and, you know, you can tell fairly quickly whether or not it worked. And that, that could be a satisfying experience of your job. You know whether or not it worked right away. So some jobs are like that where you just know whether or not it, you did a good job on it. Um, other ones, it's a little bit more tricky and you need that feedback from the environment around you, the people around you to help you know uh, if you're doing a good job or not. So uh, that, that has to do with job characteristics. Um, additionally, going into this retention strategy stuff, you know, <laughs> things like leadership, relationships, we've already talked about that, the work environment. Um, and then, you know, we're going to talk about this later, but watching for some of those withdrawal behaviors that people may have where they're starting to pull away from the organization is important. And finally, what I'd mention here is that there are some individual characteristics. Some people just have a personality type where they may be more likely to leave jobs. And that's something that um, you know, you can't really control. And so you can't control everything, but there is a lot that you can control. So the myth here is that a simple one-size-fits-all st retention strategy, strategy is the most effective. That is a myth. Yeah, that's a myth. And, and those, those are the main drivers around that. Um, so, that, you know, that's a whole thing that you have to address is how do you have both policy, but then how do you have a flexible, resilient uh, retention strategy that addresses the onboarding, job characteristics, et cetera, right? Right. So, so let, 
so Ben, let's move to evidence-based guidelines, right? Yes. So if you're interested in being a pro at this thing called retention management, um, like what are we, how do we start to put our minds around that? Yeah. So I think there's some things that we can also draw from that same, you know, we've been referencing and basically going through this, uh, this great article by David Allen and his colleagues uh, that we'll again, post a, a note to. Um, and in addition to talking about these different myths in that article, we also talk about these different evidence-based guidelines for retaining folks. And, uh, you know, there, there are a few different holistic types of activities uh, that you can engage in um, to better retain people. And the first one, I think, really starts at the top. And this is where, you know, this is a job for the CEO and his or her leadership team, uh, certainly HR, to really develop a shared understanding of what turnover is and what it's looking like in your organization and understanding why it's important and ways to monitor it and so forth among the organizational stakeholders. So this goes, you know, so far as defining different types of turnover, um, having some sort of consensus about how you're going to measure it and look at the costs of turnover within your organization. And also, you know, developing that shared understanding of how important it is to retain people, retain the good people, right? Uh, because if you don't have that shared understanding, I, I, it's not really going to go anywhere. Right. So if, if you're in the HR function and you're like, oh, God, how do I put my arms around this thing? One of the things you can do is just kick off a broader conversation within your own team, right? Of, hey, guys, let's define the major food groups of types of turnover and how we mm -hmm. want to think of them here. You know, involuntary, voluntary, you know, um, lost to a competitor, you know, whatever that is. Get your own language around that. There's some good stuff in the literature you might that might inspire some ideas, right? And then, you know, that like we're talking about you know, I always say hive mind when everybody kind of has the same uh, the lexicon or the type of words that they use, it helps the conversation flow better. And then how are you going to cost this turnover? You know, um, Pricewaterhouse uh, PwC, right? PricewaterhouseCoopers uh, mm -hmm. back in 2006, they, I'll just read this fact from them, the estimates, uh, estimates that Turnover-related costs represent more than 12% of pre-tax income for the average company. Yeah. Uh, and nearly 40% for the companies at the 75th percentile for turnover rate. So, I mean, cynically, I could say if you think money's it, I, I guess you could give everybody a 20% raise and still come out ahead versus being have a bad turnover rate. But, you know, we already talked how that's a myth and, and not the way you want to go. So, but right. you need to have a way in which you guys look at the cost of turnover. Um, and that'll actually help you get, you know, when executives start to see like, ooh, our, our, our turnover is costing us 40%. You know, that's a lot of money that they're leaving on the table. So you can, you can get that kind of attention to why this is important and, and help develop that shared understanding, right? Um, and that shared understanding for why this is important is both the cost and the social impacts and reputational risks, all of those items. So right. create that hive mind on, on turnover. Yeah. Cause if you don't have a shared understanding that retention is an important thing in your organization, then it's not going to go anywhere. Right. And that needs to start at the top. You know, the second piece of this retention 
strategy that you should be thinking about is developing some knowledge of the underlying principles and some of the cause-effect relationships that we know about with regard to um, turnover, right? So we've talked about some of these evidence-based predictors of turnover. We'll talk about more of those. There are some different paths towards turnover um, in terms of how people think about it. And there's also this idea of job embeddedness, and this really comes from the research on why people stay in organizations. Uh, and you know, part of it is that they you know are, are have uh, a lot of commitment to the organization. They are treated well in the organization. Uh, they have you know great managers, great coworkers, and so forth. They do meaningful work, all of that kind of stuff. But it also has to do with how rooted they are in the broader community, and. Uh, you know, so organizations that are really smart about this start thinking about this and say, hey, well, you know, if, if we're getting this person to move to Northeast Ohio, which is where I live, right, which is probably less of a destination, at least right now, than maybe Park City, Utah, where you live, um, you know, what do we need to do to really make sure that person stays? Well, we can highlight and we can really introduce that person to, hey, like, here's Here's the school systems. Here's the amazing things that you can do culturally in this in this area. Maybe as an organization, we get involved in various awesome volunteer activities. So the person then starts to build relationships that are within the community, not only just in the organization, but starts to build that social fabric um, that really makes the person want to stay physically in that in that area. You know. So if you think about my life, like it would take some pretty serious things to make me move because not only do I have, you know, great job and my wife has a great job and, and all this other stuff, but we are very, you know, embedded within the, the broader community here. Um, you know, we have lots of friends and social networks that kind of intersect in this broader region. So uh, that's this idea of job embeddedness, um, which helps us understand why people do stay in their jobs. So people, you know, organizations need to develop some knowledge of this and need to consider all of these different factors when they're thinking about their retention management strategy. Yeah. And, and you're a terrible skier. So <laughs> <laughs> I, so the last time I skied, well, I don't know if I'm terrible, but I, the last time I did ski, I think I was four years old. And, uh, yeah, that was when I was born in Colorado, little ski town there. So, um, I, I, maybe I'll learn and, uh, and, and it'll all turn around. Who knows? Um, yeah. So, you know, so that's another piece of this retention management strategy. Um, and the last piece is using some smart diagnosis and trying to adapt what you do to your organization's context. So, you know, using the data you have to analyze turnover costs and rates and what's going on there. Do some internal and ex external benchmarking to see what is reasonable. Develop some retention goals for different parts of the organization. Collect data on things like, you know, turnover, obviously, which is very easy to collect the data on, right? Did someone leave this year or whatever? Um, but also on things like job satisfaction. Also on things like organizational commitment. Also things on like leader and manage, manager uh, satisfaction and, and that kind of stuff. Um, so you then you can start to put together the puzzle and figure out what's going on in your organization. And that can help you design some really good retention strategies. Right. So just, just to summarize, and, and we'll put this graph up on, on the website in the show notes, but you got to get that hive mind around turnover. Have a common language to talk about it. Then you need to take a look at those cause and effect relationships. Why? Why is this happening? Um, are there any predictors, those kinds of things? And then you want to diagnose, taking that shared knowledge, 
and a look at the cause and effect, use that to drive how you're going to respond to those, those items. That's right. That's right. So maybe now we could talk a little bit about, you know, what are some of these costs? You already talked about, you know, some of the data from PricewaterhouseCoopers on how expensive turnover can be and so forth. Uh, but I think it's important for us to break down what some of these costs are, because some of them are uh, direct, some are indirect, and uh, putting those into some different food groups, so to speak, I think can be helpful for folks. Yeah. And, you know, this is something not a lot of HR people have the core competency to do. So this would be a great time to either partner with somebody in the finance function or really get um, a quality consultant to come in and and help you develop a model to to calibrate this. So, I right. mean, the first one, Ben, is separation costs, right? Mm-hmm. You know, just straight up. So, like, what's separation costs in your view? So these could be some really tangible things, um, like the time it takes for HR and the HR staff to uh, deal with somebody leaving, right? To go through the process of doing the paperwork, of, you know, uh, all that administrative stuff, doing an exit interview, if you do those types of things, that time is money. Uh, also, the manager's time. So, you know, to the degree that it takes the manager time to work through that process. Uh, also, you may need to also have some temporary coverage of that position. Uh, that that also would be a tangible direct cost related to the separation. Mm-hmm. But there are also, in addition to these tangible things, there's also some really important and maybe a little bit harder to measure, but nonetheless very important intangible costs related with someone leaving. And the first one is, you know, when people leave an organization, they're not just leaving physically, but they're also kind of taking a piece of what you could consider to be the organization's memory. You know, Um, what, what types of how to get things done within your organization. Uh, you know, all that knowledge also walks out the door. Um, sometimes if a person leaves, especially if they are, you know, in sales or a kind of a client facing role, uh, maybe a professional type of environment, if the person, uh, you know, if that's your type of firm, they also may leave with some clients, right? So that's, that's something that's really important. Um, and there's all this work that happens in the white space, right? You know, oh, that was never documented, but Billy really knew that. There's all this (laughs) organizational knowledge, like, you know, we thought our onboarding process was good, but actually it was garbage, but these people kind of really pulled people in and made it happen for us anyway. Mm. That's now out. And then on top of that, your competitors, like, if it's involuntary separation, you really want that person now has somebody that also has knowledge of how you do things. Your your secret sauce, how the sausage is made, you know, all those kind of things. Right. Um, yeah, and it can it can have a contagious effect. You know, man, right. Tim left. Tim was the best freaking employee we had. Yeah. Maybe I should Tim, how's that job over there? You know, they meet at a happy hour two weeks later. Oh, it's so great. As a matter of fact, yeah. they're hiring for this. And all of a sudden you uh uh, one departure becomes a leak, right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, this is this other intangible cost is that, you know, people are losing mentors, they're losing friends, they're losing teammates. And um, that can be a very powerful trigger in people's minds to make them start thinking about leaving, um, kind of going to this t- contagion effect. I remember one consulting engagement I did at a large manufacturing company where I was talking with a bunch, I did like a focus group with a whole bunch of the... Um, kind of 
kind of mid to upper managers. And, you know, they were talking about how uh, this one person, and this person just kept on coming up in, you know, separate focus groups, separate interviews. This one person's name kept on coming up as, well, you know, this person quit. And, you know, I'll, I'll call him. Yeah, it's like, and this was like an amazing person, right? And so they thought, though, this is the person who would never quit, who could just, you know, keep keep on trucking regardless of the circumstances. And they said, yeah, well, that person quit two weeks ago. And it just kept on coming up and became this kind of this meme within the organization, this story that you could tell was really influencing people's thinking about the quality of the organization and whether or not they themselves should or should not stick around. Right. So, so so that's that's separation cost, but now now you got a giant hole in your heart, right? You know, a person shaped <laughs> hole, and that that brings us to I replacement need to fill the cost. Hole. Yeah, yeah. So exactly. If if you're a manager, like, and don't take this wrong, like, it's a pain to go sort through a bunch of resumes, interview a bunch of people, you know, get consensus on the team on who you should move forward with, and get a rear end and a seat. Now, you know, that's just the just the facts, ma'am, kind of approach, right? Mm-hmm. You know, there's all that soft piece that is really the human factor that's important. But, you know, how many HR and recruiting staff do you want? Or how much are you going to pay if you're using an outside recruiting agency? And then, and then somebody's got to take time or multiple people have to take time out of their day to orient that new employee. All that costs organizational velocity and capital. Right, right. So those are some replacement costs. And then you know, I think in addition to these costs, or aside from them, it is important to us, for us to remember that there, there can be some benefits to having some turnover, right? Um, right. When you have somebody leave, uh, you might find that you don't need to replace them. And that could be a good thing. Um, Congratulations, Billy. You're going to do three jobs now. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, yeah. I think you, you would want to approach that cautiously um, right. and, and make sure it's actually true, right? Um, don't just pile the work on everybody else, which is kind of which another hit. Is hidden, what they do, but which is what know. they do, especially during the person's absence before they hire somebody new. And yeah, that can definitely be a hidden cost of turnover. Uh, you may have another benefit. You may have some new ideas or skills that come into the organization if you hire you know somebody good from outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may also are, you know, create promotion opportunities. Um, if you're a, a small organization, this can be particularly helpful. You have somebody leave and it's, maybe it's an opportunity for you to promote someone. Of course, if you do promote someone, then you also create another vacancy and you're going to have to fill that one. Uh, but it can be a, a motivational thing for that employee. Um, you might be able to pay the new employee less, right? So if the person has gone through uh, you know, the person who left has went through a, you know, had a long tenure there and they had a bunch of pay raises along the way, maybe were a little bit more senior. You might be able to get somebody in there who is paid a little bit less and then can grow over time. Uh, you know, the replacement might actually be better <laughs> than, than the person who left. Right. Uh, you know, so that's a good thing. Uh, and this also can provide an opportunity, perhaps, if you have a person or various people leave, depending on their role and their, their um, situation, you may have an opportunity to reorganize or restructure a team or certain parts of the organization at that time. Right. Yeah. So uh, it's just like homes. You know, if you're in a housing market, there needs to be a certain amount of vacancies. You know, Mm -hmm. let's, let's say you're newly married, you're living in an 800 square foot downtown loft apartment. You know, you get out of your bed, you put your feet in the shower. It's so small, but it's hip. It's cool. 
but then you find a dog you fall in love with and whoops, you're pregnant, right? Well, a four to 800 square foot downtown loft might not be the best fit for you. But if all right. the other houses are full, you can't move, right? Yeah. And so you need, there. there's a positive feature to the labor market having some vacancies and some turnover because it creates opportunity for people to improve their lives um, and, and their work situation. Yes. So just to bring it back to, you know, what actually drives some of this voluntary turnover. And you know, we talked about onboarding. Yeah, <laughs> you make... don't, don't screw that up. I mean, you <laughs> got to get that one right so you can screw it up later, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It, it, don't, don't mess that up. Um, another thing that drives it is certainly if someone's thinking about te- uh, leaving that, and they're actually looking for a job, that, that's certainly an indicator. Um, things like organizational commitment and job satisfaction, those are important, especially the commitment piece, whether or not, and we'll talk about this another time, a little bit later, um, about, you know, what types of commitment a person can have to an organization, the types of loyalty, perhaps you can think of it that way. Relationships with supervisors and managers. Yeah, it's important. Right. Role clarity and role conflict. You know, yeah. hey, I th- I thought you hired me to do this job, and Bill or Brenda over here says it's their job. Or, yeah. or you know, I come in, I think I know what I need to be doing, but I don't have a clear <laughs> remit from my boss. You know, and then we I, just see this all the time. You, you yeah, through all this struggle and budget and approval process to get a job, and then you bring the person in, and you don't even have them doing stuff. I I, I don't right get it. and. You know, the way I always remember the, you know, or think about role conflict was, you know, from that, that movie Office Space, which if you haven't Ugh. watched it, you you stop what you're doing and go watch it. It's funny. Um, I mean, that gosh, and it can movie, be really depressing. So I know, it, that, it, it and can. I won't say the company, but I could, <laughs> I love that movie and would watch it regularly. But there was a couple years when I worked at this one place that I couldn't watch it because it was just too much like what was going on. Right, you know? <laughs> right. Well, and it's funny because that movie is like 20 years old now, which is shocking. But anyway, um, you know, this idea of role conflict, there's a scene in that movie where, where he says, you know, I have eight bosses, Bob. Eight. You know, eight. So, when I, so when I screw up, I've got eight people coming over and telling me, right? So, you know, when you have a conflict, you have, you know, one person's telling you one thing, another person's telling you another. And especially if you're you know, junior in the organization, you're just starting out in your career, you're trying to, you know, you're trying to do well, uh, you don't want to, you know, annoy people, you want to please people, uh, that could be really challenging, and really, really frustrating, because yeah, you may like not make fe- you want to get out of there challenging. Yeah, right, uh-huh. because, yeah, I mean, you because you, you may not feel like you have the, the power or the authority or, you know, to, to speak up about it. Um, but, you know, I think you should. Uh but that can be really challenging, this role conflict idea. Um, we've also talked about some of those other drivers of voluntary turnover being, you know, how the work itself is designed, uh, the work environment, um, promotion opportunities, definitely important, um, how much people can participate in decision-making and the communication that, that happens. And then just, you know, coworker relationships and teamwork. <laughs> you know, part of what makes work satisfying and makes work worth doing is having high quality relationships in the workplace. Um, right. People around us who you know we enjoy working with, who challenge us, um, who respect us, uh, who are pleasant and civil in their communication with us, uh, that we can achieve things together with. I mean, all of that 
is is huge because we have as humans these socio emotional needs and part of and don't deny those needs. So right. you know, or if you do, just do it for a small period of time. I need a specific period amount of experience, so I'm going to put up with these jerks. You know, yeah. But but the, there is a long term physical and emotional toll if you don't take care of these actual human needs, you know, and don't, don't play to this delusion that we're just bricks in the wall. Right. Right. Uh, don't be a cog in the machine. Take care of yourself, your relationships, um, your friendships, your partners, everybody will benefit as well as yourself. That's right. That's right. And I think that's a really good place to wrap up part one of why people quit and how to keep them. You know, we talked about, turnover and retention, what the research says about that. We talked about those five myths and evidence-based strategies related to them. And we talked about some evidence-based guidelines for retention management here in part one. Yeah, I mean, wow, what a great topic. And we really encourage you to stay tuned for part two. Yes, indeed. So in part two, we're going to talk about that unfolding model of turnover that we've referenced a couple times, as well as the ideas of organizational commitment and withdrawal from the organization. Thanks for listening to the Indigo Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com, where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.